CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Juke. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome once again to the Coin World Podcast. We're so glad you're along with us once again on this presentation. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And we are back from the fun show, and I'm getting ready for the New York International. And boy, uh, are things moving along in this market, and there's lots of news. Without further ado, let's let's get things going, huh? Yeah, definitely about that, because it was a great four days that we spent at the fun show. Hopefully, had many of you had a chance to take that in. Uh, perhaps some of you caught some of our coverage on CoinWorld.com, and uh, we had the chance to be at the CoinWorld Plus booth and meet some individuals and learn a little bit more about that program as well. And there was a lot of curiosity around that. But it also gave us an opportunity. That's what's so nice about going to these shows and going to these events and attending these club meetings is getting a chance to actually meet people and talk to people. Uh, The limited time I had to spend at the Coin World booth, I was able to talk to a few subscribers, talk to them about their collections and what they're looking forward to in 2022. It's unfortunate that I wasn't there when Bobby stopped by, Bobby from uh, Cherry Picker Coins, who stopped by and dropped off a couple of state quarters that enhanced my collection. And I do appreciate that, as I do appreciate anybody stopping by just to talk. You don't even have to bring me money, but I do uh, like the idea that I got a couple of extras added to my collection. And I know, Jeff, you've had the opportunity to uh, go face-to-face with some folks or make some communication with some of our listeners as well. I got to meet Roberto, and his he talked to me about a token he was trying to get slabbed and he, he got this token in, I believe the Caribbean, uh, on like a, a vacation. Uh, it was really neat. It was, it was uh, a local token. Uh, he showed me the Numista listing and, and talked about what it meant to him and how rare it is and, and, uh, how that piece was something that, he got, you know, on vacation and where he got at this guy's shop. And uh, it, w- it was just fun to meet somebody and see that. I'd never seen the token before. We just appreciate hearing folks like that. Also, uh, somebody else heard me speaking and said, oh, I, I recognize that voice. You're, you're Jeff with the podcast. And so, you know, thanks for those who uh, gave us a shout out and, uh, we do appreciate that, and um, you know the fact that you're listening and thinking of us and sharing some of what you enjoy uh, with us at the shows. And uh, certainly, for th- I'm looking forward to meeting some folks at the New York International later this week. Yeah, just like we met a bunch of folks in Florida last week. And I tell you, you know, I've got to say there were a lot of highlights in the situation for me. A lot of times, the time spent with the uh, youngsters that are involved, the pages, uh, with the uh, organizers of the fun show from the uh, Florida United Numismatist Group. But I got to tell you, one of the highlights of my visit to the show in Orlando was the time that I spent at the bar. 
And in this case, (laughs) yes, I know. I know I kind of caught you off guard with that one. But the bar I'm talking about in particular was this huge silver bar that Dan Sedwick had. That was fantastic. 70 some pounds of giant silver bar. It was uh, how how cool is that? I mean, well, and the nice thing about it was, like he was saying, you could touch it, you could look at it. You know, you, you sometimes you see these treasures like this and they're in a display case and they're untouchable. But this was right there for, you know, anybody wanted to try to steal it. Good luck with that. I mean, you know, that would have been instant hernia surgery right there. But, uh, you know, and, and Dan was right there with it the whole time, too, wisely. But that was one of the displays, seeing some of the other items like the Andrea Doria money and seeing a few things like that. But, I mean, we could go down for all kinds of different oh, things. Oh, hey, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I saw um, at Rex Stark's booth, uh, Yapstone. It was like 18 pounds. So, I mean, it, that's something, you know, you could lift and, and abscond with if, if, <laughs> if, if, you know, if it wasn't under lock and key. And if, if one were the um, type to uh, engage in uh, such behavior but um that was a highlight there was a really neat piece of trench art there uh, there's just so much fun stuff that you never know what you're going to see at the at, at a show and especially the fun show the dealers bring out uh the big guns as as dan said in the video it was it was a blast so if you didn't get there check out coin world uh, online has a whole bunch of videos with larry he did yeoman's work on that getting to talk to a whole bunch of folks sedwick uh, dennis hengeville the previous uh, podcast guest and and so many others we had a blast in orlando and if you didn't get there hope you check it out and if you did well check out what you may have missed because you were there was just too much to see on the the floor to to cover it all yeah and as you said earlier though the news just keeps on going a lot of news happening in 2022 and there was a a little bit of cast a little bit of a pall across the show uh we were all there for the purpose it was during the show that we got the news unfortunately the passing of Harvey Stack, and uh, everybody was well aware of that the folks from Stacks Bowers were there, and certainly uh, with heavy hearts that they were there too. But the the passing of Harvey Stack, and uh, Bill Gibbs has written a, a great M- Monday morning brief that posted on Monday morning about that. But uh, you know Harvey had such a tremendous impact on this entire hobby and on the business side. Absolutely, we'll we'll touch on that a little bit more. Uh, you know, Harvey was ninety three, and it was one of those colorful characters that was sort of at the center of a, of it all for for decades, not years, decades. It's certainly in the celebrity realm, we think about Betty White and Sidney Poitier, and and here Bob Saget recently, actually in Orlando, uh, is, is where he died, but. Um, you know, there's no larger numismatic celebrity and name than Harvey Stack, one of the uh, top influencers in in the uh, Coin World publication in 2021. It's uh, it's a big loss, and um, words can't describe. I mean, I I know if I can name drop Greg Cohen, who worked at stacks for a long time now is at legend numismatic auctions he he said harvey was a true mensch you know there's so many folks out there whose lives careers were touched impacted by him even you know pretty much anyone who's picked up a state quarter owes harvey a debt of gratitude 
So, and I count myself among those too because of the work that he did there. But I think I find also too that uh, you know because of his connection to New York City, and here we are on the verge of the uh, New York International happening once again. That you will be on the way to as well. And uh, we had a high anticipation that it might have been happening in 2021. But now it looks like it's trending toward happening in 2022. So let me uh, turn the tables on you a little bit and let you answer some questions that I have regarding that. First of all, what is uh, your expectation for this show coming up here in New York? Well, I think, you know, there's certainly, as we saw with fun, there'll be some folks who we wish were there who don't end up coming. But I think there's enough of a contingent, enough of a demand you know, you're going to see a lot of folks there. There's, there's looking at the Bors roster. There's a handful of folks that you go, oh, I don't remember seeing them at a show or it's been a long time and it's going to have a little different look, a little different feel, but we're on the return path to what we used to know somewhat. And, um, I expect, I mean, CNG just sent out an email late last week about, uh, how they're, making sure that lot viewing is done in a socially distanced manner. I say physically distanced because, you know, it's that's more what the, the phrase means. But in any event, uh, they're going to make sure that anybody who wants to look at lots is, can do so in, in a manner that provides distance between them and, and another person. There is a requirement, New York City requirement. I mean, you know, the show organizers have not made a declaration or decision. They're just under the standards that the city has implemented. If, if they want to hold the show, this is what they have to do. You know, you have to show uh, proof of vaccination status. Maybe there's an allowance for testing. I, I don't, I'm not too sure about that, but you know, it's, it, it's going to have a little different look, a little different feel, but uh, sure beats no show uh, like last year. What was the last New York show you attended, and how could you summarize what you accomplished at that last show? Uh, well, so it would have been two years ago, 2020, and uh, Chris Bullfinch, who was with Coin World uh, then, he was doing the podcast then with us. Uh, we got four or five, maybe even six podcast uh, interviews recorded there at the show. It's always a good show to reconnect with folks. Some of the folks actually that are going to be there were just at fun, but they were understandably busy. I know my colleague, Brenda and I, we tried to get in touch with some folks at fun and we're going to see them in New York because it's just, it's, it's just a little different atmosphere. There's certainly a buzz. There's certainly a busyness to it. A, um, an activity to it you know there's that you can feel the pulse of the show but it's it's different because it's on carpeting and usually much i mean you know for all the grand goodness of the fun show for all the activity for all the you know, all the good things you want to say about the fun show and the organizers and all that uh this last one you know it wasn't as well lit as I think many, some people would have liked. I certainly, it could have helped to have a little more lighting in there. New York is, is bright, well lit carpeting, you know, plush. It's, it's, it's more of a, 
a little tiny, tiny upscale feel, com- certainly compared to the fun show or the ANA summer show where, you know, it's just this giant hall with these, um, stands it has a little a more intimate feeling to it a little more it's manageable whereas i certainly think about somebody who's a newer collector you walk onto that fun bourse you walk into the ana bourse and you go where do i start and your head starts spinning and it's you know it's just you could go any direction and and find stuff to look at and the New York show is is more manageable. It's just easier to take bites of, if you will. That's probably the best. Very simply, each one of them have their own characteristics. They have their own unique differences and uh, things that will help make them differentiate. You know, between a regional show, between a major show, perhaps like a a Central States and A and A, even a National Money Show, or along the lines of the. Uh, of the fun show. Each one of them have their own unique characteristics and certainly the anticipation that comes along with those characteristics, knowing that you're going to get the chance to get back and see these shows once again, that's the big thing. The organizers, they're concerned about making sure they do the right thing because they certainly don't want to do anything to jeopardize all the momentum that was gathered up and then taken away from us because of the times because everybody's anxious to get back. You hear all the talk about how the things are good now and people are spending more time with the hobby. And you just have to figure out how to continue the momentum that we had and how to continue the excitement that comes along with it. So each of these show organizers have that responsibility and they're going to keep the character of their shows so that they can continue to attract. So it's always great to experience a variety of the different types of shows, different types of events that's out there. And I I wish you well. Uh, I know you'll have a mission. I know you and Brenda will be uh, getting things done there. I'm going to sit this one out and someday maybe, but not this day. So good luck with that. We'll be anxious to hear about it next time that we get together and hear how things went for you in New York. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. I'm looking forward to getting back to the city that never sleeps. And uh, it's just a marathon of auctions. And um that's a, a nice aspect considering, you know, what happened, what's happening uh, with some of the bigger shows, say fun, say new um, A&A, where auction firms are holding the auctions whenever they, I don't want to say whenever they feel like it, but, you know, they can hold it a week later. They can hold it a week before, uh, usually after the fact that allows folks to do lot viewing at the show. There's many folks who like that aspect of uh, being able to take in the show and not feel as much pressure and, and as much as much of a time crunch to get the auctions done at night when and do lot viewing and all that while you're trying to be out on the floor and and all and and so on. So the, the New York show has most of their auctions preceding the show. And then uh, some during the show and some after the show, it's certainly spreading all those out allows for folks to focus and not be so distracted and and so um, diverted from looking at uh, looking at that. So anyway, it's, um, you know, things are things are looking up, I think. There you go. And uh, we're going to have an interesting guest coming up a little bit later on in this presentation 
who, like the rest of us, uh, spent time at the show this past weekend. Just had a different show this time, so we'll be coming up with that interview here in just a couple of minutes. But right now, I think it's time for us to go to one of our regular features right here, one of the ones I really look forward to, and that's a look back at our numismatic history. So it's time for you to jump into the Wayback Machine and take us back. January of what year? We are going back into... 1784. Oh, I need to have the, uh, you know, some sort of sound effects here for, for the Wayback Machine. So I sort of feel like, um, you know, like a Wayne's World type. Anyway, uh, we're going back to January 11th, 1784. That was when the Spanish brig of war, El Cazador, I believe that translates to the hunter. El Cazador sailed from Veracruz, Mexico, with 400,000 pesos of newly minted silver coins en route for New Orleans, but the ship was lost at sea. And it's appropriate because uh, we mentioned Dan Sedwick. Uh, Dan and his firm specialize in shipwreck coins. I know they've uh, offered items from the wreck of the El Cazador. There are plenty of coins out there in the marketplace. If somebody wants an El Cazador piece, I believe I have one. I bought from Dan a f- uh, four or five years ago at an A&A. They're sea salvaged. It's, you know, it's, it's nothing pretty, but the idea that, hey, this was, I mean, looking back from this vantage point, you're talking 238 years. Uh, so that was, that was a while ago that something wrecked and rested on the floor of the ocean for that long and was recovered and is now in uh, my collection today. That's kind of fun. So January 11th, 1784 is where we went to. Yeah, that's a good place to go here because, I mean, a lot of things happening, especially, you know, we seem to go back a little further. We're even beyond we precede the U.S. Mint here, but there's a lot of things that happen in the history, and this is why I enjoy this so much, is because it's not something that's necessarily going to be found immediately in the history book. You're not going to gloss right onto something like that, and so many things happen. We're making history now with, uh, you know, some recent events, but just getting back into the 1780s, it's, it's pretty cool. And especially timely, knowing that uh, the shipwreck treasure is always, always highly desired right here. So Coin World wasn't around in 1780s, but uh, we did have some time in the 1990s where a lot of things were happening. So let's uh, take a visit to 1996 now, shall we? Absolutely. And we are looking at the January 8th issue from 1996. I chose this issue because 1996 was the year that Harvey Stack made his uh, testimony before Congress. He testified before Congress uh, in support of what would become the state quarter program. And uh, I thought as we're remembering Harvey and his contribution to the hobby, uh, why not go back to that year? And what uh, initially threw me about this issue is the main cover, the front page says January 8th, 1995, but it is, so there was an error. We talk about errors happen and, uh, and we have proof with Joe Cronin. Well, uh, in this case, we, we made a boo-boo back in the day. The main page of the cover of the issue had the wrong date, but uh, the rest of the pages had it right. So, so that, that's kind of funny. But anyway, 
the big thing, uh, that issue, actually, there's a connection to Harvey as well. So the news then was that the Eliasberg collection, Louis E. Eliasberg Sr., that Eliasberg collection was going to come on the block. And of course, Bowers and Morena in New York City was the firm that was going to, I'm sorry, the the auction was held in New York City, but uh, Bowers and Morena would end up conducting the sale. A little known fact is that Harvey Stack had helped the senior Eliasberg in getting his coin collection both adding pieces to it, but also then getting it on display for the nation's bicentennial in 1976. So, you know, Harvey's the through line, I think, in this week's episode by sheer luck. For those who don't know, Louis Eliasberg was the first and only collector to create a a complete collection of U.S. coins. There was a, a coin that wasn't known at the time that later surfaced that Eliasberg did not have. But when he died and, you know, in his collecting pursuits, every known U.S. coin type and date and all that was represented quite a feat to have this. And of course, like he didn't have, uh, I don't think he had the 33 double eagle, but uh, that wasn't legal to own at the time, right? So, uh, you know, Eliasberg stands as a giant in the hobby for his collecting pursuits. I, in fact, once wrote a story about him where, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's hard as collectors. We want to have everything. Well, Eliasberg really did have, have everything, at least, uh, you know, every, every type represented. So that was big news back uh, this week in Coin World's history from 1996. On the letters page of that very same issue, we have one letter here. There's a, a very small letter. It was called Big Ben. It says, let me put in my bid for being the first to call the new $100 bill, Series 1996, $100 Federal Reserve note as Big Ben as a nickname. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, in the football world, Big Ben, Ben Roethlisberger, that's been the big news and Pittsburgh Steelers and all that. And there's this story from uh, this little note from uh, a writer in Seattle. But uh, another letter that talks on uh, something that I really enjoy reading about. This is called Fun and Helpful. Now, it's uh, from 1996. And so that means it goes back now 26 years says, I'm 45 years old and have been collecting coins since the age of eight. My dad introduced me to the hobby by presenting me with my first Whitman penny folder and 25 pennies. He showed me there were different dates and mint marks and where they went into the coins album. It was interesting, challenging, and fun. So I went over to a friend's house to show him what I had. He asked his parents for a folder too. At eight years old, you don't have much of an income, so he and I came up with an idea to make money so we could buy more coins. At our neighborhood market, there was a soda pop machine where everyone left their empty bottles. Well, back then, bottles were worth two cents each, so my friend and I would pick up all the bottles and cash them in. Once we'd saved up $1.50, we rode our bikes to the bank to get three rolls of pennies. We would search through them and pick out what we needed, then roll up the rest of them and trade them back in for new ones. Trying to fill up those folders was a lot of fun. Children today could do the same thing that I did many years ago. 
if a parent gave their child a Whitman penny folder circa 1959 to the present. Since there are plenty of aluminum cans to be picked up, a child could have fun collecting coins and help the environment at the same time. From Michael Fiore, Pleasant Hill, California. And it was interesting in reading the testimony of Harvey Stack in 1996, how he suggested in addition to the quarter program, the state quarter program, that maybe the Mint or someone could develop giving away or making available at cost some of the folders in which uh, collectors could put their items in there. And so I thought, yeah, that just continues the idea right there of making the receptacle for these coins available and that gives you the incentive to actually collect. So that's a timely letter along with that testimony of 1996. And that's what I found on the issue of January 8th, 1996. Fantastic. And, you know, speaking of sharing the hobby and doing all that, I, this is now a good time to share an email that we received from Joe Sebet a couple weeks ago. And I I just want to share what Joe has been doing. He says, hi, I've been buying, conserving, i.e. cleaning, identifying and collecting, collecting ancient coins for a few years. I have accumulated quite a nice amount of nice looking but unidentifiable uh, as to who the ruler was Roman coins and came up with an idea to share the hobby. Most people I share with assume a Roman coin is rare and expensive. They also find the subject interesting, at least for a moment. What I started doing is stapling the coins into a smaller holder, not the typical two by two ones, right? Late Roman empire and century of manufacture and etc. And I place these one at a time in tip jars. They should be an interesting find. I have about 75 or so ready to go. I just need to remember when I get a coffee or something else. Just wanted to share that there are ways to generate interest and share the love of numismatics. Thanks, Joe. And he's in California. Now that reminds me of something that uh, somebody does as well. Brent Pearson is a modern hobo nickel carver and Brent does the same thing. He sort of plants seeds uh, with his hobo nickels, placing them on park benches and in uh, Starbucks tip jars and the like. So there are plenty of ways out there to, to have fun, be involved, share the hobby, you know, very affordable. And, um, uh, you know, it doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg and, and it's just, all about highlighting the fun that can be had. So thanks, Joe. Uh, We appreciate that. It's a timely reminder for that. Yes, indeed, because it, it takes that curiosity because we're all, we're all blessed with the curiosity, some of it more so than others. And when somebody comes across something, they don't know what it is. Maybe they're going to Google it. Who knows with these days, but I mean, just imagine, and I especially thinking about Brent's situation with the hobo nickel, wouldn't it be so cool to have it right near a busy park bench and you're sitting on the park bench and nobody has any idea. You're the one who put it there and somebody comes across that, hey, what's this? And they ask their parent, their parent really doesn't know. But then again, there's an opportunity for somebody to develop a mutual understanding there. And it's just like, maybe they're going to be looking for them. They don't understand the concept behind it. But then eventually they learn. But the idea is you got to open the doors. And there are many ways to open up doors. And these guys have got it right. They've got it figured out. I know Dennis Tucker is another guy who does a lot of things like that as well. So it's great to have these people in our hobby. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
It's also great to uh, get some understanding about the things of the past, like we had uh, with uh, Lawrence Torchnack on recently here, and he's going to, I have to read the book because I'm going to fail miserably. I know there's going to be a question that I should have known the answer to, so give me that question once again. The last time we had a regularly scheduled episode, not the um, the yearly recap, I asked you about sort of emergency money because, you know, Dr. Korchnack was talking about siege money, and that's a type of emergency money. And I wanted to know the highest denomination of a British coin, English coin, during the English Civil War. Uh, this was uh, struck for King Charles I at Mints in Oxford, and uh, rarely at Shrewsbury, uh, just one year, Oxford for three different years. Uh, so do you have any idea what the highest denomination coin in this era was? I really don't know. I don't know that much about them per se. I remember uh, Dr. Korsnack mentioning Stivers, which is not anything to do with this one. So I'm going to I'm going to throw out maybe, and I don't think it's that big of a denomination, so I'm probably going to come woefully short on this one, uh, about five shillings. Uh, you are indeed short. So the coin is known as the Triple Unite, and uh, in this case, it was valued at 60 shillings <laughs> or t- yeah. 12 times the value you quoted, uh, 60 shillings was equal to three pounds because 20 shillings is a pound on the old uh, pound shillings pence uh, format. And uh, 20 shillings was also known as a unite. So a triple unite is three times 20. Lots of math here, but that's 60. Uh, 60 shillings was the uh, face value, if you will, also known as a triple unite, also equivalent to three pounds. Now, this coin weighed uh, 27.3 grams, just over seven eighths of a troy ounce, but it was struck in gold. And, uh, you know, it's, um, gosh, they are rare and storied and expensive uh, today. So, um, you know, it's it's not something that most people are going to have in their collection, but uh, it's definitely museum quality. And uh, that is why I thought I'd throw you the loop and see if you could get it right uh, on our trivia last time. And that didn't happen. I didn't get that one right for sure on that one. And even if I had known what I was looking for, I, I don't think I would have found it on the fun shelf floor. No, I I mean, there may have been one in auction lot viewing. Uh, I I don't remember seeing one for sure. But uh, in honor of Harvey, I think this trivia question is absolutely uh, manageable. I think you'll get it. It involves Mr. Stack, the late Harvey Stack. So we talked about his influence on the state quarter program, but it wasn't really his idea in one sense, because he, he borrowed inspiration from a a similar series in a different country. So I want to know when he testified in 1996, uh, he made reference to and was inspired by a similar set of circulating coins honoring 
geographic and political entities of a nation. So what nation was this and what coin series was this? For a bonus, I will ask you to name two other countries have that have enacted similar series since the U.S. adopted the state quarter program at the beginning of 1999 or 98. It was 98, I think. Anyway, um, who else has, has taken that idea since the U.S. Uh, did theirs? And uh, that's bonus. Name two of the many countries. Uh, and that's a wide open field. I think you'll get both. I certainly expect you to get the main answer correct. Uh, everyone out there in podcast land, put on your thinking caps. It shouldn't be hard, uh, at least for the main one, if you've paid any attention to the modern world coin market at all. Well, I think I'm going to get the first one because I have kind of an interest over there. So I'll say no more about that, but I'll accept the challenge. And it's always great to have challenges, that's for sure. And that's what we're going to be talking about with our guest here today. Lou Raffis is with us from the Garfield Heights Coin Club. And they've got a unique program that's underway now, limited time opportunity here for anybody who may be interested. So now's a good time to take a look and take a listen to this special program, and here is Lou Raffis on the Coin World Podcast. You know, the Coin World Podcast is just so thrilled to get to do this today. This is a little something different, and it's exciting to think about what this could mean for a different way to embrace the hobby. We are graced with the presence of Lou Raffis, the president of the Garfield Heights Coin Club. That is a club that is in suburban Cleveland, Ohio, on the lake. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. You're president of the Garfield Heights Coin Club. Before we get into what is really exciting, mm-hmm. uh, talk about how long you've uh, served in that role and and how big the club is and, and some of its history so we get an understanding of where that fits into the, the hobby in Ohio, which Ohio is a great coin state. Mm-hmm. Sure. The Garfield Heights Coin Club has been around since about 1948. So quite a bit of history there. And I've been president now for just over 20 years, about 21 years, and uh, probably be president for life uh, (laughs) as things are going. But uh, it's a joy for me. Love doing it. And we get to do some fun things. We have about 150 members right now, probably the largest club, certainly in Northeastern Ohio and, and one of the I think the three largest clubs in all of Ohio right now. We are very well known for our monthly auctions. We have on average about 100 lots per auction every month, and they run about uh, $2,500 to $3,000 in total value. The members really enjoy the auctions. We have some very good auctioneers from the area. And we've grown that auction. Now, on occasion, we'll go to as, as many as 130 lots. We recently had, two months ago, uh, an auction is lar- that broke $10,000 in terms of total volume. Had a few gold coins in there that were worth some money. We also have lots of raffle prizes that we give away. A couple of parties every year. Some great free educational opportunities in terms of literature. Uh, we have a nice library for the members. 
lots of free stuff that we get uh, as well from some local coin shops that we have some nice tie-ins with. It's a very good experience for members and, and we're able to do it all on, on just a $10 annual membership fee. Wow, that's pretty incredible here. But I mean, I got fixated on the first statement that you made when you said the club started in 1948, which we both know happened to be the last time that Cleveland won the World Series. But uh, I think that was pure coincidence when that happened there. But uh, <laughs> let's just talk about the present time now, shall we? And uh, get away from the sports references here. But uh, the idea that the the club has been going strong for well over 70 years and how did you weather through the uh, recent times, the pandemics? Were you able to uh, keep the club active and keep the club going? Well, yes, we were. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to partner with a local monthly coin show here, the, the Cleveland Coin Expo that started, in fact, during the COVID period. They offered uh, local coin clubs uh, free tables, and we took a, a full advantage of that. Even though we stopped meeting in March of uh, 2020, we were able to have tables at the show. We held silent auctions at the show. They were small 15-lot silent auctions that uh, the attendees of the show could participate in. And uh, we had some of the members put in some of the, uh, the lots. And uh, it worked out pretty well in, in terms of just uh, keeping us active Coupled that with monthly, or oh, I should uh, should say weekly emails from me, and uh, kept everyone in the club, uh, you know, tied into the hobby as as best as we could. So we started meeting again in uh, October of uh, twenty one, and have been meeting uh, ever since. Yeah, you referenced the um, Cleveland Coin Expo. John Rebick is the uh, founder promoter of that. It was exciting to hear that. Uh, here was the growth of the hobby during these difficult times. He said, you know, there's demand for a show in uh, the greater Cleveland area. You know, obviously there's there's a monthly show in Cincinnati and Columbus near Toledo, but I don't think there had been one in Cleveland or maybe it's a, it's a smaller venue. And, and anyway, in a short amount of time, he's really taken that to new heights. And that also then it allows for or paves the way for what you guys are doing here in just a few short weeks. And I think it's really innovative and really exciting. You know, we all fantasize about owning coins uh, that maybe are out of our reach. And we're many of us are familiar with the fantasy football concept, which, um, you know, certainly I know Larry's well tuned into. But now you guys are taking that idea and uh, those two ideas and, and marrying them together. Tell us about what you guys have come up with and how that's going to work. Right. Uh, so uh, we're kicking off the inaugural Cleveland Coin Expo Fantasy Coin Tournament and sponsored by the Garfield Heights Coin Club, so in partnership with John's show. And uh, this idea does take off from uh, fantasy sports as well as fantasy investment portfolio games uh, uh, that uh, I've participated in in the past. And uh, we're not certainly the first club that's ever t uh, done this, but hopefully if this takes off, we'll be able to take it maybe to another level. So for the month of January, we are accepting entries on both a, a individual or team basis. And what we've come up with here is 
that we're going to ask each entrant to invest up to $15,000 in imaginary funds in a portfolio of U.S. coins and or currency in any way they wish. And the coins and currency must be listed in the CPG Market Review publication and at coinprices.com. And the value of the portfolio will be locked in on January 31st. And then we'll monitor all entries for performance changes as a percentage of their initial investment. And we'll, of course, regularly report on those changes and track them accordingly. And then the winner will be the entry with the greatest percentage increase in portfolio value from January 31st to December 31st of 2022. So I'm looking at the entry form and I see that I, I can choose one coin or I can choose up to 10 or, or one note uh, or I can choose up to 10 items and uh, 15,000. How, how do you come up with that number? You have a, a lot of latitude to pick and choose what you're going to uh, want to mm-hmm. put in this portfolio. Right, right. Well, we went back and forth on that a little bit, Jeff, but uh, we didn't want to go crazy with it. So we wanted to to challenge folks, but not make it ridiculous. And keeping in mind, too, that someone's going to have to track all of this information and report on it. So we wanted to keep it at a reasonable level and just settled on the on the 15,000. So it's sort of an arbitrary number, but something that uh, we think is is manageable just from a reporting basis. Well, I guess I won't be choosing uh, a 1933 gold double eagle for my portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) And I would think that would stand to reason because there's a lot of potential in lower, I mean, the coins that don't have the uh, headline value of that, there's a lot of potential for growth in those in certain markets, in certain areas. And I would certainly think a a well-placed, smaller denomination coin could have a shot at uh, picking up favor and and making its way through the year. I mean, we've learned nothing else from the last couple of years. You can't predict the future. You've got to roll the dice and go with it here. So I think it's really interesting here that uh, you have this concept. But I mean, a lot of times, just like when we play fantasy football, I get a guy that gets injured and I got to dump him and I got to get somebody else. Is there a provision for you to be allowed to make any changes after you set your quote unquote lineup on January 31st? Mm -hmm. Yes, Larry. Uh, What we're going to allow is one change opportunity. So on June 30th, for a $5 adjustment fee, if you, if you will, uh, we're going to allow individuals to make as many adjustments to their portfolios. In other words, just trade in and out of their investments. So just one transaction, period, if you will. They can swap the entire portfolio at that time or, or just one item, but we're going to limit it to just one opportunity this year. We wanted to balance out simplicity with some aspects of the the whole fantasy tournament notion. So we're going to allow this this one opportunity. The thing that I don't think we've touched upon yet is I suppose I'm I'm looking and I just can't pick out 10 items. I can put together more than one portfolio, right? But that's mm-hmm. that would be a, a different entry fee. How does that work? Yes, uh, you can enter as many times as you want for that $15 entry fee. You can enter as an individual or perhaps uh, have a, a team. You can enter several t- with several teams. We're not limiting that in, in any way. You know, I'm not part of the uh, Garfield Heights Coin Club, and I'm not, I've not been to John's show yet. 
if I enter, I'm putting myself in the place of a prospective contestant. How will I keep track of what I'm doing? Is there a way to know how I'm doing relative to the whole field? Or is it just, oh, I can go to coinprices.com and and see that, you know, my $15,000 has gained $2,000 value or, or whatever it is at that given point? Mm-hmm. Once we have everyone's contact information, we will put together a nice report that will become available. And as long as we have your email information, we'll make sure that you are regularly updated along with the rest of the group, regardless of where you're located. Maybe that's along the same concept that you utilize with the club, where you keep them informed on the weekly newsletters and that type of thing. So this would be just an extension of that. Obviously, it could potentially be a lot more work and maybe weekly is is uh, too much. But, uh, you know, just the idea. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs to remember that the spirit of this entire project here, and I, I commend the Garfield Heights Coin Club for what they're doing here. And if anybody has done it in the past, I commend them in absentia. But the idea is that we're here to develop ways to enjoy our hobby a little more. The idea that this is a little contest in good spirit really does a lot for me. I mean, I'm really heartened by seeing activity like this. You deserve a lot of credit. My question that lurks right here, even though this is relatively new, what has been the biggest question you've, the question you've had to answer most often? Uh, Related to this specifically? Yes, yes. Well, we've had to explain it several times to individuals, just the, the entire concept. As you could probably imagine, the average age of our, our group is, oh, probably 65, 70, something like that. And so the familiarity, when I just say, oh, this is like a, a fantasy sports team league, that doesn't re- necessarily resonate with my members. So uh, I, I really have to get into the, the nitty gritty and, and explain exactly what we're talking about here uh, at a level of detail, perhaps more than, say, someone who's involved with fantasy sports and kind of gets the basic notion of what we're trying to accomplish. This is really fun and really different. So obviously, whoever wins this, there's going to be some bragging rights, but what other sort of incentives are there for those to participate and and hope to win? Right. Well, we're going to take that $15 and uh, split the pot several ways. The top three winners will get cash rewards, and those cash rewards are going to be based solely on the amount of participation that we get ultimately the club will get some of uh, some of that total pot as well and then we're going to give some of it back to John and his show because uh, they are providing the market review publications for us so that we have some extra copies to hand out to our members so I can't tell you I can't give you an exact number of just uh, what that that dollar amount ultimately sure. is going to be for the winners but hopefully it's it's going to be fairly substantial. Well, I would certainly think so, because, I mean, once the excitement gets built up there, I mean, you're only helping your own cause by being involved in something like that. And it's in, it's heartening to me to hear that the club and that John's show are going to get a little bit of the benefit, too. I mean, the standard deal where the house takes 10% off the top or whatever the case may be, 
the whole idea behind this is to promote the hobby, and that is to generate other ways to enjoy the hobby, but also to promote the, the groups that are helping to get these activities going like this. Now, earlier, Lou, you mentioned the fact that a majority of your members are in uh, my 65 to 70 range here, but uh, how's it been going here? Do you think this might attract younger hobbyists who would be interested? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Larry, and that's that's one of the reasons that we're really promoting this is that we think this is something that is going to really resonate with the younger crowd, those that are more familiar with the fantasy sports concept. And we think it's just a natural fit in that respect. And we think it will draw out some of those people in that younger age range that are, say, much more comfortable on the internet and have developed their hobby through the internet than, say, through clubs or shows. What we're trying to do, of course, is trying to draw that younger generation into the club and into John's show. And and this is just one way of maybe uh, doing that. We're thinking of some other ideas down the road, but we think this might resonate with that younger coin collector. And certainly we know that uh, many of those folks are community-based in terms of if someone happens to see them participating in an activity like this, they may want to be involved in the activity as well. And so it seemed to me that this would also provide, in addition to increasing the interest of the younger people, it would also provide a suitable starting point for someone who's interested in learning more about the hobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I occasionally get questions from individuals asking me what area they should be focusing on in terms of the hobby, what coin series might be particularly hot, uh, where should they turn to for potential investments. By participating in something like this and then maybe following up with some additional research over the course of the year as we track performance of these various portfolios, I think this is going to serve a, a nice educational purpose for those members and those participants interested in, in maybe understanding a bit more about the investment side of the hobby. Awesome. So how can I get a copy of the entry form? How can I enter? Um, mm-hmm. Is there a, a website or should I email you? What's the what's the best way to do that for those who are hearing this and, and think, oh, you know, let me let me jump in. The best way is to contact me through my email address at L underscore R A F F I S at hotmail.com. And just ask for the entry form with the rules, and then I'll provide you with the payment information and where you can submit the form. Now, I don't want to end it about the contest right here, but I do have some questions to ask you since you went ahead and put your email out there for the world. Lou, tell us a little bit about your personal experience in numismatics. How'd you get involved? Oh, sure. Uh, I go back, oh my gosh, probably at age of 10, 11 or so. I really started as a stamp collector and baseball card collector. I got involved in the hobby primarily through my then future brother-in-law and still current brother-in-law, who was a coin collector. And uh, he introduced me to the Garfield Heights Coin Club, as a matter of fact. So I started with the Whitman folders and filling the the Lincoln Cent folders and 
moving on from there. I put it aside, uh, as is quite typical, as I entered my high school years, college years, and then picked it up again a little bit later. So uh, my focus primarily over the last 10 years or so has been more on the paper money side. And my specialty area is obsolete banknotes from Ohio. So up to the Civil War period, primarily, as well as depression script for the state. And uh, when uh, Wendell Wolka uh, put out his a big publication on Ohio obsoletes, that was kind of an eye-opening experience for me and uh, opened up the, the entire world and, and history of uh, Ohio obsoletes. And I've been uh, active in that area ever since. Well, that's interesting too, to me, because one of the things I recall from the conversations that you have, that when you have the auctions and you have such a large number of lots in connection with the club, you must have a great variety for anybody who's interested in anything. So obviously papers represented as well as coin. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, very much so. Yes, uh, paper, exonumia, coins primarily, world as well as, as U.S., Canadian. We do get a very nice mix. In fact, this this upcoming uh, January auction, we have a couple of nice pieces of of paper uh, in the auction. Awesome! I you know I I love hearing the, of your interest in the obsoletes. Uh, of course, you know you mentioned Wendell, uh, and I work with him because he writes a column uh, every month for us. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've I've bought a few pieces of uh, some a few obsoletes from the you know different canal banks and all that. I mean, mm-hmm. Ohio just has such a rich numismatic history, as I mentioned earlier, and that is so cool that you found that area and um, have you know enjoyed it and been able to serve mm-hmm. the hobby as well uh, as president mm-hmm. of the club. Yeah, it's a lot of fun sharing the uh, some of my. Uh, collection with the uh, the members uh, of the club and passing the, the notes around. It's a bit of an eye-opener for the members who uh, don't get to see those pieces very often. Yeah, some of that stuff's real rare. Mm-hmm. No yeah. doubt. As well as the collectors for it. Well done. Well put right there. So let's go ahead and recap once again. The deadline is January 31st, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So then the entry fee uh, is $15, but you can get more information. You're going to use $15,000 in your portfolio, as it will, and uh, you can get all information. Give us the uh, email address once again so they can reach out to you, or if it's available on the club site, where can they find this information? Sure. Uh, The email address is l underscore r-a-f-f-i-s at hotmail.com. That will go directly to me, and I will respond promptly to you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lou, for being here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're excited about this and, and its potential. And um, I think now we're going to let you go so we can start doing our research and get our entries in. Excellent. So we look forward to, to seeing them. Thank you. Thank you. That was Lou Raffas on the Coin World podcast talking about a unique Uh, A real fun way to engage in the hobby and learn a lot, my gosh, and put your skills to the test and go up against other like-minded collectors and see what you can do with an imaginary portfolio of $15,000. So we're going to be interested to see how this develops. Maybe... uh, 
about a year from now, we might just have to find out who won and, and talk about their picks. Yeah, definitely have to do that. I mean, it just follows up on the line that I just had two fantasy football teams come in third. So, I mean, third is a uh, good place to be compared to 10th. But the idea is, uh, you know, always want to be the one who is on top there. And it'd be great to see as once again, this is just one of those things where you can't control the outcome. It's just how well can you control what you think the outcome is going to be. Just like Sometimes I can't control what I'm going to say on here, it seems like, but uh, most times I try to when uh, sometimes I win and sometimes I don't win. But uh, we're getting down to the point right now where we got to get you packed and get you on your way to New York so you can enjoy the international show and uh, you know safe travels once again. Back to hear back from you next week on how it went. Thank you so much. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody out there, thank you. Thanks to Coin World Plus. Uh, I'll be at the Coin World Plus booth at, uh, in New York. And until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. CoinRoad Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinRoad Plus at CoinRoadPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.